Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Did you hear me and Dar uh, trying to coordinate a clap over Zoom and there was like a slight delay? That was hilarious. a very cute moment. I first heard it because I listened to her audio and she's like, okay. Uh, yeah. And I love her. Uh, I love mm. her speaking voice. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. I think that, um, okay. One, two, three, <laughs> clap. I feel like what happened was she has like a more calm personality than I do. So she would clap, clap like count one, two three and then wait like a nice full beat and then clap and i would be like i'm nervous right it's like uh there's that like radio commercial of um like an auto insurance company that's like having people count you know how you're supposed to like count to two before you start driving like if you're at a red light i'm not making any sense you're at a red light the light turns green the car in front of you goes you're supposed to count to two before you go why is that for safety oh and then there's like a guy going one mississippi two mississippi (laughs) and then he goes i don't know if you know this i'm a driver's ed teacher um but you're not my driver's ed teacher my driver's ed teacher was boyd jensen shout out to boyd who teaches (laughs) teaches new drivers all around the state of new jersey to this day when I learned to drive at the ripe age of 26 he would come to my house every weekend and pick me up and then we would drive around and talk and parallel park and he's a very sweet man so love you Boyd was he nice super my driver's ed teacher was so mean but it was effective because I still remember things that he would say like when you're merging you have to check your blind spot. Uh, and then he like basically like punched the side of the, like he's in the, the passenger seat and he punches the side of the car. He's like, or else, bam. Oh my God. And like, I never, there's a couple things that I've never forgotten. I don't remember his name. I'm sure my high school friends, my five high school friends that listen to this are like, it was blah, blah, blah. I feel like we've already started because this is, I mean, pretty golden conversation that we're having right now we are well underway cindy well underway well welcome to basic folk i'm here with lizzie no i'm cindy house thanks for listening today so this episode is coming out in about two and a half weeks from when we're actually recording these okay so lizzie has just freshly come off americana fest i am currently in a hotel room at Freshgrass mm-hmm. uh, in Mass Mocha in North Adams, Massachusetts. I feel like an insane person. Lizzie, <laughs> give us an update on your situation. Okay, I am recording from a quality inn in Luray, Virginia. 
Americana Fest is always a lot. This year it was especially good because I feel like things are really changing in Americana. We had, uh, I was mm. I was staying in the Black Opry house and we had song circles of black and queer artists every single night. You're probably hearing how hoarse my voice is because we were just like sitting up, passing the guitar. I mean, I got to see Britney Spencer, Raina Roberts, um, Chris Pierce. It was like, it was amazing. It was Miko Marks. So mm. many, so many people that I look up to just came through that house. And I was staying on a bunk bed with the amazing uh, Joy Clark from New Orleans. She was your bunk mate. She was my bunk mate. Uh, so it was just like, it was the best time that I've ever had at a festival for sure. It's nice to hear you say that because it really does feel like things are changing. Mm -hmm. uh, and to bear witness to it is a lot different than, than just, you know, being far away from it yeah. and then, you know, hoping and hoping and hoping. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Also, oh my God, Brittany Spencer. Oh my God. She's a star. She is so like amazing. Like, she is a star. She has a star quality. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you were in her presence without just like committing to following her around for life because I feel like I would I, I would be in danger of that do you want to know the truth yes okay so I Absolutely. got a little bit high on a weed gummy I was watching mm -hmm. reality tv with Olivia Ladd who's an awesome journalist and friend and then I hear the front door of the house open and like Brittany comes in with like a bunch of admirers and I was like oh no, I am too high to meet my hero, Britney Spencer. Like, play it cool, like, oh wait God. it out. Maybe just wait till she leaves because you don't want her to see you like this. But eventually, like, I worked up the courage. Also, that's really, listen, I want to commend you for that judgment call. Yeah. Um, but don't commend me too soon because yeah. moments later, I was like, okay, go out. Just casually get a glass of water near her then you can see her, but she doesn't have to see you. But of course, like by the, the minute I like went in the same room as her, I got so excited and I crept up behind her like a spider, like grabbed her by the shoulder and was like, you're Brittany Spencer. And she was like, um, hi. No. She oh, was like, no. um, hi, I'm Brittany. And I was like, hi, I'm Lizzie. And I just, I love you so much. Oh, I'm like, I'm sorry that I'm touching you. Um, I, I'm just I'm just such a big fan it was not a good look it was not a good look I don't I don't regret it because it was really really cool to meet her <laughs> all right I love that for you I think that's perfect oh, I just God. really really hope she doesn't remember me if you don't know who Brittany Spencer is and um you would like to go back we actually had her on the podcast last year and she is like a rising star so like it was a, about a year ago she was on Basic Folk, and I really feel like that has brought her career to new heights. Oh, absolutely. JK, it was a cover of – she she, <laughs> she posted a cover on Twitter of her doing Crowded Table, yeah. a high wom women's song, and Marin, tagged Maren Morris and Amanda Shires and Brandi Carlisle. And Amanda Shires is, like, the most wonderful person, and she and Maren Morris, like, grabbed onto it and retweeted it and shared it and commented on it. And then Marin and Amanda like invited her to co-write with them. 
And she, like I feel like ever since then, like things have been falling into place for this extremely talented, wonderful star person. Oh yeah, and there are so many people that are great writers, artists, singers. Britney is all of that, but she also just has this presence that when you're around her, you're mm-hmm. like, I am around someone so special. It's very hard to put your mm. finger on. She picked up my guitar and played Sober and Skinny, like there in that kitchen. Stop it. Yeah. Wow. It was life-changing. She's she's <gasps> so cool. So cool and great. <laughs> oh, it's so exciting to watch like a career being made mm-hmm. that of somebody who deserves it so much. Speaking of... Um, Amethyst played. Yes. Uh, Amethyst Kia played at Fresh Grass, and holy smokes! Like she had a full band, so it was her bass player and a drummer. And her bassist, I think her name is Emily. I don't. I didn't catch her last name, but she was like so fun to watch on stage. And Amethyst was just insane. Like, oh my god, she was on the main stage, and I'm so glad they put her there because oh god, it was just her like so much power. And also, like, like a different kind of star, like, rising. It was rad to see her play. I feel like Amethyst is a mysterious rock star. Totally. But, like, Amethyst is, like... So I interviewed her for the podcast a year ago. And have you met her in person? No, I've never met her in person. Okay. So before I met her, I was like, what is this person going to be like? But interviewing her, you kind of get a sense of, like, her personality. And before I met her, I was like is this person going to be like the most intimidating cool person cuz her music is incredible like she's incredible like her style her whole look have like set me up for being like you know kind of wondering like what is her personality going to be like and her personality is like totally friendly and nerdy and approachable and it's so wholesome I love it. Yeah, she's a good she's a good spirit. And then she gets on stage <laughs> and she murders us. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So that a benign murderer. <laughs> so that was an amazing, incredible set at Fresh Grass. I'm having a lot of fun here. The other amazing set I saw last night was Amy Helm, who I've never um Oh wow I've never seen her before and I really love her uh record. And uh she is just recently on Basic Folk. And we had a, a really good interview. And I was like, cool, I love this record. I like love Levon. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm probably gonna like her set. And her set was at eleven fifteen in the evening. That's oh like, no, Cindy, no. Yeah, I know. It's like three hours past my bedtime. It's like folk alliance. That's jammy time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it is yes, it's jammy time. It is lights out. But I was like, I'm gonna do it. And then after the first song, I was like I knew I was going to like this, but I had no idea how much I was going to like this. And mm-hmm. it doesn't surprise me that I liked it so much because I love, uh, you know, the the I love Levon Helm's music and I got to see him perform once and Amy was singing with him, but it was like the same kind of like inclusive vibe, like everyone was dancing, everyone was tired, oh. but like she just like drew us in. She's up there dancing like I don't know. It was like a combination of like Stevie Nicks dance. It was like Stevie Nicks combined with like a, just like your mom dancing, you know, where it's like she's just up there clapping her little hands off. And if it weren't Amy Helm, it would have like it was if it were me, I would look like a big nerd. But Amy Helm is up there and she's got her curly, curly <laughs> hair bouncing in the light and everything. 
Oh my gosh, it was so great. I was like texting everyone Gorgeous. videos. I didn't act, you know what? I should have texted you a bunch of videos. Yeah, what the hell, Cindy? I don't know. Yeah, I'm sorry. You know who is a great stage dancer that I got to see and, and meet this week is Chris Pierce. What a presence. I think everyone should go out and listen to his song, American Silence. Mm-hmm. But he's also such a fucking cool guy. Like, stomping and dancing on stage. He just walks into a room and people are like, whoa. Great. Is he tall? He's like six. Oh, yeah. He's a giant man. Giant man. We got we had him on the podcast and he mm-hmm. so I've only done like a zoom with him and stuff. But the follow ups afterwards, he's like he knows I live in Pennsylvania and he's like, how far is Lancaster from Pittsburgh? Can you come to the show? Like he wants to like hang and be friends. He's a delight. Yeah. What a sweetheart. <laughs> is there anything else that we need to cover before we get into Dar? No, I'm just happy to see you again on Zoom. I feel like you and I have gotten into the habit of seeing each other every weekend for the past few weekends. And it's just it's just so hard out here on the lonely road without my friend. Oh, man. You know, I was thinking about this recently that like I need to make a commitment to try to come to your shows wherever they are at least once a month. Tee hee hee. <laughs> Are you, um, so this is like one of the most obnoxious, if you don't know, this is one of the most obnoxious questions you can ask someone in the folk world, um, but I'm going to ask it. Are you going okay. to Folk Alliance? No. Dang. Okay. Okay. So I, everyone is always telling me that I should go to Folk Alliance and then I never remember to plan to go. Mm. So maybe it's TBD. I think probably okay. not. Because I've been like a chicken with my head cut off. And and it's in Kansas City. I know. I know. <laughs> I would love to go. So I won't say no, no, no. But if anyone wants to like invite me to Folk Alliance and be like, here's where you're sleeping. Here's what you're doing. And here's your plane ticket. I will be there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's see if we can make this happen for Lizzie. All right. All you folk industry tycoons who tune into basic folk you have been given a challenge all right today's a big day for basic folk uh a lot of dreams came true um with with this star williams interview and uh why don't you set us up i'm so excited for for everyone okay cindy this interview was a dream come true not only because I have been such a big fan of Dar Williams since I got her CD at the Princeton Record Exchange in like 2004. Which one? I think it was The Green World. Mm, okay, yeah. That's where I started. And also because she's just one of the most like giving, engaging people that I've gotten to talk with about music. It's just really, really cool to hear from her. So Dar Williams is a singer-songwriter legend at this point. She is from Mount Kisco, New York, and she grew up in what she describes as a time and a household where people were being encouraged to break down the old ways and learn new ways of expressing themselves. Mm. So for her, that meant learning about theater and learning about music and playing instruments. Um, She ended up going to Wesleyan University and studying theater and religion And her engagement with matters of the heart and spirit is something that still shines through in her music. She's, I think, one of the most interesting songwriters right now 
talking about religion and talking about spirituality mm-hmm. um, in such a humane and like nuanced and respectful mm-hmm. way. Can I just make yeah. can I just make one comment about mm-hmm. Dar? So like traditionally I've been I've not been like a lyrics person. Mm-hmm. Um, usually the first thing that catches me, especially in um, like an artist like Dar who has a lot of like really wonderful hooky melodic music on her songs the way that she combines that skill of like making something that's incredibly catchy and also making something that is like fucking devastating is insane you know it's like it just kind of like sneaks up on you and you're like oh holy shit this song is actually about you know xyz but right yeah for her yeah the like like a lot of great artists like for her the melody is the way in and so, okay, so after college, she ends, she moves to Boston, gets into the scene there. And we talked a lot about, like, what a healthy art scene looks and feels like when you're in it. She wrote and released, you know, her amazing album, The Honesty Room, and mm. kind of, like, went to the folk big time. She was a part of the original Lilith Fair tour, and we talked a lot about that. I mean, what a legend. The lineup, mm. I, yeah, I can't even actually talk about all of the heroes that she was singing with there. They were part of a movement of feminist art um, that wanted to show that, like, all female lineups could be commercially successful and that it mm. mattered oh, man. to do that. Yeah. Did men hate it? Did did the the bad men hated it? The good men Boy, loved it. oh, Boy, oh boy, did people hate it. But only a few haters, you know? Like, it was like one of the most financially successful tours ever. They sold out everything. Um, <laughs> so we got oh to God. talk a Lizzie, lot. Of- I-, I could just go on and on about the Lilith Fair and, you know, yeah. people calling it lame. And, like, what is so lame about a music festival that fucking sells out every show? Yeah, that's called rock and roll. That's what that is. So we talked about Lilith Fair. We talked about, you know, I was curious to kind of sit at the feet of a master and and, and pick her brain. As a a feminist musician myself, I am curious to know, like, what's different? What does someone who, like, really has been through it have to say about feminism now and women in music now? And what would it take for another Lilith Fair to happen? What would it take... um, for another like great uprising of women in the music industry. So Dar was had some great insights about that. And her most recent album that's coming out October 1st, oh, it'll be out by the time this episode airs, Correcto. is called I'll Meet You Here. And it's a great album. Dar was kind enough to play a song live for me from the album. It deals a lot with a person coming to terms with the passage of time, acceptance, place, small towns, some of Dar's like bread and butter. It has everything. It really does have everything. It's, it's so great. So yeah, it was really cool to talk to her about like the making of that album, which to me feels like, oh, this would be a a masterpiece someone wrote in quarantine. But interestingly enough, it was mostly recorded before the pandemic. Um, and then hit some definite speed bumps on the way to release mm-hmm. because people on her team came down with COVID. It was just like this wild ride. And I'm so glad <laughs> that the album is finally going to be out in the world. 
That's great. Well, thanks, thanks, Lizzie, for setting us up. And Dar actually uh, started the interview off um, with the title track. She just played mm-hmm. the whole thing. And I think that's how we'll start uh, our interview. Thanks, Cindy. Ready for this? I don't think anyone's ready for Dar Williams. Listen, we're just diving right into it. Okay, uh, let's listen to this song. It is the title track from Dar's new album, I'll Meet You Here, and then we'll get to our conversation with Lizzie No and Dar Williams on Basic Folk. Time, be my friend, be my friend. Though I have not been so kind to you, always asked where you were going. Though you had no way of knowing, no, no time, I have not been kind to you. Time, meet me here, I'll meet you here. I will go walking for a little while, and I know what I will say. I know there's only now and yesterday, oh, time. Meet you here. Cause when I thought that I was alone, you snapped your fingers and a tree came into bloom, and the sun came by to fill my room. Oh, time. You will never tell me something that has not happened yet. You will But I can get just what I get And you will never say you love me You will never say you love me But I can love just what I get Time, I'll make it up to you this time And we'll go walking down that wide country road And I will be a brave companion Your adventurous D'Artagnan I will be your best receiver Your goldenest retriever I'll remember what you taught me And those treasures that you brought me Most of all, a lifetime of friends together when I asked you to be one of them oh time be my friend cause when I thought that I was alone you snapped your fingers and a tree came into bloom and the sun came by to fill my room oh time Thank you so much. Never in my wildest dreams did I think I would have a one-on-one 
Living Room Performance from Dar Williams. Um, <laughs> and that is a track off of your new record, I'll Meet You Here, uh, which comes out in October. And I have a million questions about that record. But as we get to talking, I'd love to start kind of from the beginning, if that's cool with you. I've read that you started playing the guitar at age nine and your parents were super encouraging. I'm, I just want you to set the scene for us of like how young Dar became a songwriter. Was there music in the house? Um, were you exposed to a lot of culture and art or did you seek that out on your own? Well, you know, I think it was the time that mm-hmm. it was the seventies, you know, and the seventies, you had the sixties where a lot of stuff broke open. And then the seventies was kind of like, everything's broken up and let's see how, how it rolls. And so, right. you know, when you were nine years old, you played an instrument and my parents had folk music on all the time on the record player. Who were some of your favorites then? Oh, you know, my dad had an alphabetized uh, record collection and it was like everything from B, B, C and D was, was, so it's the birds, you know, so oh, all yes, that yes, harmony, yes. the <laughs> harmony singing of the, so, and um, Joan Baez and Judy Collins and uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Jim Croce, and a little bit of Bob Dylan, but you know, we were three girls and we, we liked our girls, you know, we liked Judy yeah. and, and Joan. So, um, and then you would kind of go down to the mamas and the papas and Simon and Garfunkel. So it was all of that really harmonic, uh, oh, Harry Belafonte. <laughs> so that was a oh, B. Yeah. So all of that harmonic stuff from the folk, uh, folk rock was really in the rotation. And then my dad mm-hmm. had a whole classical thing. And so he would listen to classical music that would come blaring through the house. Anytime he worked in his workshop in the basement, I don't know what he was, you know, whatever he was fixing, he would blare opera <laughs> and sing along. So we had, and, and there was a station called QXR. So there was all this classical that my dad liked. And then we had folk, and there, there was this blur between the two. And we were encouraged to not see classical music right. or folk music as that different from mm-hmm. each other. You know, like that they were both really important contributions to humanity. And um, I think, and my parents really respected that. And they used to bring us to see local productions of oh, plays that are, you know, the downtown with the, the Chappaqua drama group. And that was the real, like, okay, this is a really big deal. You're about to see a musical. And they didn't say things like, with people you're going to see in the grocery store. Like, they just, just elevated it. <laughs> um, so, like, yeah, you saw everything from you know, local theater to Mozart as like all on the same continu- continuum of the history of art. Exactly. And I think that was a 70s thing. And that was my parents. And, you know, my father was, um, he was really interested in, uh, he, he did audiovisual educational things. So like you'd see a slideshow and he worked for the, you know, he, he wrote this, the, the text for the slideshow that you'd watched in your classroom. But he was really interested, like the whole company was really interested kind of lifting the bar. So they would put in like rock music as examples of stuff. And he did one thing about the Bible once and used, you know, Crosby, Stills and Nash and, you know, like singing Woodstock, Joni Mitchell's oh Woodstock with like a painting by Rousseau, you know, and um, of the... I bet that was kind of a shakeup. Yeah, it was. Well, it was. No, the 70s were all about kind of getting everything off of its pedestal mm. and giving everything a little bit more equality and, and its own 
breathing space, you know, and that was so then I started and the thing is also that means there's high participation. So there was a summer stock theater that I got to be a part of and there were guitar lessons that people were giving. And, you know, it was a time when I was like, yeah, I play an instrument, you play an instrument, you want to write songs, great. You know, even though there was such a thing as celebrity, you know, and that was important. It was still for the people in a way. Yeah, yeah. And it was and it was kind of expected, I think, from in general, but certainly my, my parents. And the thing is, like, there's definite, like, scene set- setting and drama in your music. And I know you studied theater in college. When did it start to become clear that, like, music was going to be the path? Um, and that, you know, because it seems like you were kind of equally interested in, like, theater and other forms of art and music. Like, when did you realize, like, I'm a songwriter? Um, it, it was decided for me because oh, really? I was in um, Boston. And a friend of mine oh, right. said, you know, I had all these friends in New York and it just seemed like they were spending so much time just paying the rent and getting around. And my friend yeah. said, just move to Boston. It's so affordable. You can get a cappuccino and a bagel for less than $2. And I was like, okay. And um, I didn't realize that, um, you know, places really specialize in what they do. And and what I tell people now, mm. it, if they're interested in music, is to, to go where the scene is. And there are some great scenes that, like... Um, Minneapolis mm-hmm. has a the Twin Cities have a great scene yes. and and um but like and and Boston still has that thing going on in like Cambridge so you know go to the place where you can go to an open mic four or five six times a week what that so that was what was going on in Boston what wasn't going on in Boston was a lot of homegrown regional theater they had a great theater but most of it gotcha. was like equity cast out of New York so <laughs> mm-hmm. so I so it just made sense. Yeah. Like you go where you go where the work yeah, is. Yeah, well I wrote a play and I also I was working for the Opera mm-hmm. Company of Boston because I thought I might want to be a um oh, really? a, a, an opera director. Um but that mm-hmm. is there's not not a lot of those positions available and it's really best if you speak three languages no. or four and and sure, sure, can sure. speak, you know, music <laughs> that way. You, you can't just direct it like a play. And um so uh but I realized that I missed singing and so that was a fortuitous thing um and um so I went to open mics and um slowly but surely kind of found my feet it was almost like a a grad school and then um Mm -hmm. and then you could go from tip jar gigs you know you could have tip open mics to tip jar gigs to opening for people to split bills with your friends and you know maybe nobody was listening but that's okay (laughs) wasn't much worth listening yeah. to. <laughs> I mean, that's called like a paid practice. Right, I know. Yeah, and I was on a radio show and I was like not good and and the and I I looked at the person afterwards and it was a college kid and I said, "I don't I I'm not so good at this yet." And they said, "Yeah, neither am I. Our mics weren't on." <laughs> so it was like it was perfect practice cuz nobody heard that. Oh my god. Uh, but yeah. That's a, that's a mercy. Yeah, so we were able to learn from each other, mm-hmm. and there were song circles and and things like that, and and grow, and then and then I felt like I was getting a little too, um, you know, paying too much attention to sort of the rungs of the ladder, like who yeah. gets this gig, who gets this gig, who, you know, what's wrong with me, and and um, so I said, okay, I've got to move out to the country, mm-hmm. you know, and just write my songs, and I did, and I moved to Northampton, and it was you know it's co- cows and college students, and I wrote my first record the mm-hmm. honesty room i had these two cassettes out <laughs> but i did my first album my first cd called the honesty room at um sort of just all sitting on this one futon very heartbroken very alone mm-hmm. in northampton 
and with no sense of, of who would listen, which I guess is a really great, you know, I was like, well, I'll follow my truth. And then I brought those things into the world and um, they, they hit some mm-hmm. collective unconscious thing that no one could have, right. like I wrote a song called When I Was a Boy, which you could argue is, is you know, just a, like a feminist song. But it was kind of weird because I wasn't feeling it as a feminist song. I was feeling it as like, I didn't know what to call it. And now we would call it gender. It was right, all about something deeply personal. It's about identity. Yeah. You're not thinking of it as political no. until a bunch of other people say, I feel that way too. Right. It's gender. It's, it's gender identity, which is more personal. I mean, it is also political, but um, it's, yeah. So I, you know, here I am saying, you know, like when I was a boy, this happened when I was a boy and not saying, you know, when I was a girl who was like a boy or, you know, it, it's not a feminist manifesto. And it was weird how many men, uh, came to me I know there, there was something it was very co-ed <laughs> like the right. it, a lot of people <laughs> responded to that song and it it wasn't um it, it just hit us an inc- interesting nerve at an interesting time because acoustic music was so big in the 90s oh, yeah. with Ani DeFranco and I was very much on her coattails so um I was just lucky all around but that first album kind of it did more than splash it was more than a little splash which had a lot to do with its time um, and, and my luck. Yeah. I want to talk about that time because it, I mean, hugely influential, like doesn't even begin to cover it when it comes to so many feminist songwriters. Now, um, you were on one of the original Lilith fair tours, which is like just such a legendary landmark in music history and feminist history. Were you aware at that time that you were a part of something like a part of something that was going to last or was it kind of like, these are like-minded people, we're doing what we can, and then later it hit you? Like, did mm. you feel like, ooh, things are shifting right now? Well, it was representative of a shift because the what had happened was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and but and really I think retrospect was the best way to see this. Although I, I think I knew at the time, yeah. there's something that, you know, radical means root. And so a lot of stuff yes. had happened at the roots of things like, kind of decentralizing music venues and and the coffee house scene and and people with their individual voices kind of diversely showing up and uh, you saw it at the end of the 80s with um the indigo girls they were very different from mm-hmm. Suzanne Vega who was very sort of downtown New York who was very different from right. Tracy Chapman who was very and different. Sarah McLaughlin and Cheryl Crow. Like there was this whole. And REM also, you know, like people <laughs> right. like that. So mm-hmm. so not um, kind of people being able to feel their oats a little bit before they got the record mm-hmm. contract and really getting to explore what we call the mm-hmm. audience-based career. So that was happening. Mm-hmm. There was another thing that I only understood its, its power later on when I was teaching about it, which was what we call the women's music scene from the 70s. But it was really the lesbian music scene because it was you know you had lesbian women and and gay men and gay men saying you know we can be together you know we can agitate together for everything that we want um but our movement's going to feel a little different than yours Mm -hmm. and then you had the feminists saying you know a lot of this has to do with uh being pro-choice you know reproductive choice and about pay equity and you know, now you're asking us to bring on this whole sexual identity thing. And there was there was a lot more coolness there than than people gave it credit for, I think. Yeah. But there were also women who were like, I want to really dig in with all the stuff that I'm learning about, you know, 
um, identity, race, feminism, mm -hmm. sexuality, experientially who I am, that can't be accomplished in a bar, in a gay bar, or right. in these like large caucus, you know, mostly white feminist events. Mm -hmm. So music venues became the place where you would hang out. Like there would be a bookstore mm. with a concert series, or there would be these music festivals that would have, you know, breakout spaces for just talking about stuff. So music became the place where you was this cauldron of identity conversations and politics. Mm -hmm. And it was also a safe space uh, for, for all of that. And that's really the venue through which um, feminism grew because a lot of, you know, I mean, I really believe that the lesbians who came out and said, yeah, tell, you go ahead and tell me that <laughs> I'm building my own house and no man will ever marry me. That doesn't really affect me. Right. <laughs> that doesn't really <laughs> matter to me. You know, a lot of them were like, I don't really need to participate in this whole, like, which, you know, what shoes should I wear to impress a man? Where's your husband? <laughs> right. Where's your husband? Right. <laughs> exactly. So, so, um, they, and they, took that power in, into the world in a way that I think mm -hmm. really empowered straight women as well. So um, anyway, when I was starting to play, a lot of the people who were used to going to music venues as a place to kind of find safe right. space, conversation space, to, to kind of expand their world, were still there in the habit of doing that. So these blocks of women who, you know, didn't like to watch television because they didn't, couldn't see themselves in it, and didn't want to go watch Rambo would come to these concerts uh, in in the early 90s and there was just a whole lot of women coming out of that right. even straight women but you know there was definitely Farron and um, you know people who showed up you know Natalie Merchant so um, yeah so she's and you know mm -hmm. she's straight but there's that kind of that empowered right. female voice and her narrative and her gaze that was showing up coming out of the 70s coming out of the 80s and then you had a lot of women were, who had a paycheck, you know, and they would say to their partners, girlfriend or boyfriend, like, I would like to choose what mm -hmm. we're going to go see. And I'd like to go see Ani DeFranco. I don't want to go see Lethal Weapon 2. <laughs> and so you had like some economic base right. that was building. And, and a lot of guys were like digging it and saying, yeah. okay, like, you know, they, they were with the program. It wasn't this, you know. And so... Um, Lilith Fair, I call the yes. blossom. So that's what I recognize. So you had all of this stuff going on at the roots, all of this fertilization, cross-pollination, mm -hmm. whatever the metaphor, out of which came so much strength of all of these different women that the you know Sarah and the people around her were mm -hmm. very savvy about saying, if we collected this all together and presented it in its diversity, like mm -hmm. Michelle Nedicello, uh, Joan Osborne. Amy Mann, like there's just the whole spectrum. Right. If we if we put this all together, it's it's a thing, and it will be economically viable with Aveda and right. Volkswagen as its sponsors. Oh, interesting! I didn't know they were the sponsors. I was going yeah. through some news articles <laughs> from that tour, and like, you know, obviously some like local journalists were extremely skeptical, and there were just like such backwards ways of describing an all, you know, woman tour. But then, you know, some had to begrudgingly admit, like, it's the only tour of the year that's been sold out every show. Yeah, there was a lot of, yeah, they kept on putting me close, like at the press 
conferences, they kept on putting me closer and closer to um, um, the in, to, to Sarah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because I would push back. Like, I, I saw this coming in terms of being involved with all of the right. women's music stuff, like the Michigan Women's Music mm-hmm. Festival and um, other sort of lesbian festivals where I was invited, even though I'm straight, you know, and, and the coffee house scene being so much a part of that all of those voices like I was like no you know what the audience who listens to this they go home so you might not be hearing much radical stuff in our music but generally it's it's the food for the souls of of people who do a lot of important work with um inclusion Mm -hmm. health you know pushing policies forward that are more sensitive you know stuff that we see today in terms of you know race gender class right like there has to be dancing in the revolution you know someone's job needs to be to like feed back those soul points to the people that are giving so much on the front lines yes exactly exactly and that's what um and and Lilith was this this moment of celebration that it was actually such a big raft of people that it was economically viable and um do you think anything like that could ever happen again or has do you think like the music business has just changed too much? I don't think the music business is there enough to mm-hmm. be part of the shaping process. Mm. Um, and so it wouldn't, it's really interesting how, um, you know, like there was something called down from the mountain yeah. in the early aughts, right? Mm-hmm. So 2002, 2003. And the, um, and really there's a lot that's still there that's like that. Instead of it being like, okay, here's Suzanne Vega. Oh, now we have the Indigo Girls. Now we have yeah. Michelle Natticello. Now we have, you know, the, the, it's kind of like one at a time, but it's, it's a kind of a, oh, here's a really different voice from the other woman that we were pushing forward. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a kind of a Tracy Chapman time, mm-hmm. and there was a kind of an Indigo Girls time and a, a Michelle Natticello time. In, and um, and it, that's because there would be this kind of amplifying machine from mm-hmm. the record companies. And Lilith Fair was also heavily amplified by this industry that was heavily capitalized by the sales of these little plastic things called DVDs. Yeah. And they say now that the streaming is the same, but it's it's not. It caught everybody off guard and it yeah. didn't it didn't filter into like those kind of large events. It was more like record companies said, okay, we're going to capitalize on the fact that you're going to get your song in a car commercial as yes. opposed to like helping to put together the way Network did um, Lilith Fair. So they just, they just don't have that platform. They don't operate that way right. as, as from what I've seen uh, as much. So um, it might have to be done in more of a guerrilla way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But or- organically, mm-hmm. you know, there's so much good stuff that people do. There's just, I, don't, I mean, so much farther along than it was 20, 25 years ago in terms of um, the transgender conversations, gender conversation. Black Lives Matter has shown us so much about what we have to work on, that, that it's not just micro, like they're super macro, and it's you wake up and think about it. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's shown us the problems more than the solutions, but I think that we will now be entering into more solutional conversations so that's all different the environment we're yeah. uh, even though the environment's pushing back on us right now our approach to the environment is much more proactive than it was 25 years ago so it feels like we actually have like some stake in it now 
it's I, yeah, it's sort yeah. of used to be this like niche liberal issue, like the green movement or whatever. But like, I think people are starting to realize, like with the hurricanes, with the floods, like this is real and it's it's happening yes. to all of us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think that we're really prepared, you know. So it's just a question of of how we're going to go on that. But you know, uh, marriage equality, mm-hmm. legalizing pot, like decriminalizing pot, all of those things. Talking about mass incarceration, yeah, like it's just we are much I went to a college where that was all over the place in our conversations but you know there we were sort of off to the side very like New England lefty and now it's becoming more mainstream (laughs) yeah yeah there was at my at my college there was um they they drew outlines of women this this group of women drew outlines of women lying down on the ground like a murder you know like a murder scene thing and then they would say a woman was assaulted here and you know they found this map of people who had and and that you know that was like very me yeah. too before its time and sure. um it's like if you'd had the internet if you had had the internet at the same level yeah. of saturation at that time it right. could have been very different exactly but those were you know i was very used to people having mm-hmm. those conversations i remember the admissions department being like you know it's really hard to give um college tours uh over those outlines of bodies and the women were <laughs> like well you can go to hell you know then you yeah. should deal well, with this better <laughs> We are uh, bringing the type of student who's going to want to know about that. (laughs) I wonder what what was it like? Because you've taught um, at it's Wesleyan Wesleyan College, University, University, yeah, University. (laughs) Um, You've taught there now. Like, do you feel like a lot of those political conversations have come a long way? Um, Are there like through lines that you see with the students? Uh, That kind of connects back to what your, your experience when you were there. It was fantastic. Well, you know, I think when we were there, there was this, um, you know, there was a lot mm. of um, self-segregation in terms of just race, just like black and white, oh, you know, and, and in terms of like having these conversations, the conversations were happening, but they were within sort of these monolithic, somewhat balkanized mm-hmm. things, you know, balkanized means sort of right. mutually hostile, not meaning to be, but yeah, and um, and there was a, um, a group of uh, people of color from uh, of Asian descent, and they were coming forward and saying, look, there's a whole set of conversations to have here. But it was kind of like people were in their camps explaining to other people, you know, what was going on. And we were all kind of trying to speak from. And when I went back to Wesleyan, um, you know, Martin Luther King says this thing about the content of, you know, people relating mm-hmm. to each other by the content of their hearts. And um, I mean, it makes me a little emotional, but it was like these kids were side by side, like music nerds yes. were listening, like one with an ear pod in, you know, ear, and the other with an ear pod in there, like sharing ear pods, listening to the same music going like, you know, and, and it was, it was racially all diverse. It was all like what we, what Martin Luther King had said, you know, that I said, and I kept on seeing these clicks of people based on you know sports or music or English or right. flowy skirts or whatever and it but it was not based on skin color it was like when I was there we we didn't want to be you know that balkanized but we were mm-hmm. of the time and and we weren't finding each other as well and now I saw you know meditation groups that were you know everything was mixed and um that's kind of um a aspirational yeah. A, a vision of what the world could look like but I felt like Wesleyan for all of its agitation had really you know kept on working at it and had these environments and that's what I'm seeing on college campuses now uh in general I mean it's not again it's like right. you have to look at the systemic 
and the institutional, and at the same time, we can celebrate some ways that people are able to really connect on the content of their hearts um, and and the way Music they Music nerds that. are going to find each other, yeah. you know, one way or another. That's a good, really good thing. Um, I want to talk about the new record. Um, I'll meet you here. It feels like it's a gorgeous record. I've had it on repeat. It feels like this sort of sunlit window into your life. And I know that the process of making it was hugely affected by COVID. I think it would have been different if you'd made it, I don't know, in 2018 or 2019. All right. Here's the thing. We recorded it in 2019. Oh, my gosh. It's a pre-COVID record. And we did do, but we, it was affected by COVID because there was one track that wasn't coming out. So I went to my friend Larry to do the song um, Time Be My Friend. And um, we so were supposed good. to mix it and things were getting kind of funky because it was in March 2020. Mm -hmm. And Larry actually said, I said, I'm not sure if I can make it. And my manager was saying, if you guys do work together, I want you to make sure you have a hand sanitizer. Like we didn't know about the masks. And yeah. Larry, remember when they were telling us not to wear masks? Right, right. <laughs> and that, so, and, and and so then Larry said, um, actually, I, I, it's good if we delay it a little bit because I don't feel so good. Larry oh had COVID, God. and Larry had a bad case of COVID. So if he had come down, you would have all been. Everything could have been different. I mean, it was a building filled with producers and and musicians, and a lot of them were, you know had lung issues, I think, because a lot of them were like <laughs> older and had smoked a lot of pot <laughs> and, and cigarettes. And, and, and so, you know, it was a kind of a groovy aging group of, of musicians and artists in New Jersey. And I, you know, so it, we were touched by that. And then we did have to do a lot of mixing and remixing via, you know, like oh Zoom gosh. calls and stuff um, to, to get it right. So, you know, it was sort of refining our language to make sure we were on the same page. But it was um, a wonderful, uh, yeah, it, it's bizarrely um, filled with references yeah. to the pandemic for the fact that it came out before the pandemic. There is some witchy power that mm. you have to have as a songwriter if you're going to speak Maybe. to people, really. <laughs> I mean, this makes me believe in the witchy thing because there's yeah. just, I don't know, there's references. I mean, especially like time, I'll meet you mm -hmm. here, I'll meet you here, like okay time you you have the reins um that was very much uh the, right. the, the anthem for me of the pandemic is that sort of like a do you do you lean into buddhism or eastern philosophy at all like i know you are very well studied in religion but does it go beyond a study into a personal practice or is it just something that you think about kind of cerebrally I returned to what I call OTC Buddhism mm -hmm. um, late in September last year. So I'm, okay. I'm coming up on a year where instead of meditating for 10 minutes a day, uh, I, would, I meditated for an hour, 10 or 15 minutes of which is listening to Pema Chodron mm -hmm. or Thich Nhat Hanh, and, uh, but mostly Pema Chodron. I love her. It has been really, it's changed everything. It changed everything. And especially coming back out into touring, I'm seeing, you know, like when I was on mountain stage the other day and I didn't really know what to do with myself, I just said, well, this is just, this is the fundamental ambiguity of life. Right. This isn't, I'm not supposed to know what to do with myself. And, or if I have a bad gig, it's like, was that a bad gig? Was that a good gig? Yeah. I don't know. Like life is really ambiguous. And, and who's to say, so don't get hung up. You have no idea. Sometimes like I've, I'll find like what I think is the worst gig ever. Mm. 
someone will email me oh, later I like, oh, I, I hadn't even heard of you and I caught the show and it made my night. Or And you just, for you, that was like a horrible experience. And then for everyone else, it was completely different. You, you can just, I know. sometimes you have no idea. And yet, and yet I didn't have a basket into which to, to hold all that stuff. And I feel like the sort of return mm-hmm. to Buddhism is being able to say, oh, I don't know if that was good. I don't know if that was bad. It just was. It's just what happened, you mm-hmm. know? And I don't have to go, you know, I don't have to like have a glass of wine and just chill out and go, you know, and, and break from that. I just have to deal with the fact that life, you know, most of the, the, the environment around us is air. You know, sometimes life just feels yeah. like air. It doesn't feel like you're doing something right or wrong. It's just air. And that's kind of just it's reality. Just and it mm-hmm. really helped to to do to I don't know it's like pretty central to my life at this point it's just made me a little friendlier I can imagine <laughs> I mean it's all over this album but again it wasn't it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't there I mean it pre the, the practice came after the album but yes sorry uh, go ahead yeah sometimes well no sometimes you're processing something in your mind maybe yeah. and then you figure out what to do with it later I was so touched by the re-recording of You're Aging Well. It's like such a powerful song, love the original. What did it feel like to sing that again after maybe 25 years? Can you talk a little bit about re-singing it, revisiting those moments? This version, you know, redoing it was about was about Joan for me mm-hmm. because I was the same age that she was when she took me yeah. out and it was... Uh, no, it's funny because I wrote the song and then she chose to sing it with me yeah. after I recorded it and put it out in the world. And and yet she is emblematic of that song and of mm-hmm. the person who comes along, the woman of voices who that comes voice. along and says, I'm glad that you're here with the things you know now that only time can tell. Like that was always, that was so Joan, which mm-hmm. is, you know, again, I wrote the song and then Joan was so... Um, sisterly like she brought me to the front of the tour bus the first day I was traveling with them and everybody else was in the back like oh she's having that talk with the opening act so Mm -hmm. that the opening act won't be intimidated and so that she'll feel like she's a part of this team and they all hung out in the back while Joan sort of told me her life stories and some of her struggles and some of the things that she's dealt with in this way to to connect me to her (laughs) as a person and to say you know like she was it was kind of like I had done a lot of therapy and now here I was going out on the road and she had been on the road forever before she went to therapy and it was kind of a, oh, so we all do everything but in a different order. Like she did everything she could to equalize mm-hmm. the situation so that she could empower me as a fellow musician as much as possible. Wow. It was fantastic. She really didn't have to do that. and um, But that was who she was. Ooh, that's powerful because the way that I heard the song like the new version it sort of feels like you speaking to a past self even like mm, if, maybe yeah that's that's the way that I heard it and then I read what you said about Joan Baez and I was like oh of course like these are the conversations we're having with our I don't know and the sisterhood I experienced you know there's nothing mm-hmm. like getting it out of the magazine article you know about like when people were talking in the pandemic about how they're use, using their times like they're like I want to I really want to unplug and and learn more about myself and you know not you know be so caught up in the rat race because I read this magazine article that said that then the pandemic happens it's like yeah you're really going to learn about that like this isn't just some nice you know quasi spiritual no. article about you know <laughs> unplugging this is like you're really going to yeah. gain some weight here and you're really going <laughs> to 
have to this is six months of sweatpants yeah and you're really gonna have to 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 get into like the the deeply okayness of that mm-hmm. and it was very um it's it was so nice to get away from the rhetoric of like someday yeah I know I should meditate it's right. like well why don't you just try meditating and maybe it'll work maybe it won't yeah. you know maybe one day I'll slow down yeah <laughs> yeah like I'm doing this one little ritual of, of, of chewing my food 20 <sighs> times to I so I can really understand what it's like to slow down it's like how about something like you're locked in your house for months at a time <laughs> and you can't go to your job how about let's try that as a ritual for yeah. you know really having your own I think people really like experientially got got into like what works for me I mean mm-hmm. I I sleep from two two to nine that's like I I go to bed at two I just don't I'm not pretending anymore what are you up to in those hours are you like a late night mystery tv watcher are you writing there's plenty of that no it's not a good time for writing biorhythmically so i probably ideally i would be going to sleep at like you know doing a one to eight kind of thing and then like mm-hmm. getting up that's a good time but um no i uh, like i get back to people you know i it's it somehow i don't know yeah. i i just do um but i also kind of do nothing as it were i do a lot of kitchen cleaning at around like 1 30. you should do yoga at one in the morning which is great you just take <laughs> off your clothes like you don't get into special clothes oh you gosh. just take stuff off and there you are <laughs> i'm like why does anybody do like in-person yoga sorry yeah I know a lot of yoga no i mean like <laughs> the pand- speaking of what works for you like i have completely left bras behind in 2019 like it just uh, it just doesn't serve me anymore <laughs> it doesn't have to yeah. yeah and so the question now is what are we going to bring back into yeah. like i think a lot of you know somebody just drove me crazy he said that he flies for work all the time and i said but didn't you learn and it's not a it's not like doctors without borders right you know <laughs> it's like a job and I said, but why, what, didn't you learn that you could like zoom stuff instead of having to fly, which is so bad for the environment. And he's like, well, I have to prove that it's better for the bottom line. And I just thought, but the, the planet has a bottom line. And yet the bottom line has its own force and it has its own sort of weird faceless reality. And so now we have to come back and say, you know, I was a better worker when I was able to walk my own mm-hmm. dog in the middle of the day. And when I was able to, you know, my kids really don't want me to say anything to them, but they like me to be around. It's called the potted mm-hmm. plant theory. And so <laughs> I like to be in my home office and, and I like to walk the dog so I don't have to hire somebody. And yeah. I also like to make my own lunch so I'm not wasting. And, you know, so the question is, are we going to have that, is that faceless bottom line reality going to come back to us and go, I get it. That's that's mm-hmm. how we're going to proceed. Or is it just going to say, sorry, I'm not seeing how this no. fits on the ledger. So we have to just do everything that we did the same way again. And does that make good work? Because like, I think it makes worse work, you know, except that I because, you know, except I look more obedient because I'm like struggling to find, you know, childcare, you know, because my kid yeah. gets sick and I can't find a babysitter. So you get to watch me sweat, you know, for you. But I'm not sure if that's mm-hmm. better work. So the, just the whole question, you know, how, how we're going to come back out into this with our bras, you know, are we going to shave as much? I don't know, you know, and it will be a, a little bit of personal courage to decide how we're going to stand in that mm-hmm. now that we're out, outside. And I'm seeing some of that happen, too. It's, it's you know, an opportunity. Oh, that's a good time. point. Nowadays, I feel like I'm spending a little more time defending my daily naps because like in the pandemic, yeah. napping mm-hmm. 
of course, what else would you do? Yeah. But like now that touring is back and people are actually busy, it's like, no, I actually realized that I need this every single day. And you know what? That's just like a secret of our success as musicians that we can do that, like that we can be cats oh. that just go like, I do it all the time. I curl up and fall asleep all the time. I mean, people just expect that of me and I don't. Yes. It's, it's like lucky me that I can do that. Um, and then there's all the, all the articles. Yeah. I don't yeah. work at a bank. Yeah. Leave me alone. <laughs> Um, I want I want to get into um, I just have so many questions and I and I want to be respectful of your time. I want to talk about places on this new album. Um, I'm thinking in particular about Little Town and Berkeley, and you're someone that has traveled a ton, who's studied cities, written about cities, written about towns, written about the places that we share and the issues that come up when we're all in one place, right? Like, how do we welcome a newcomer? How do we welcome someone that doesn't yeah. look like us? How do we share resources? Um, places in this country that are like getting it right. Um, that are like, well, yeah, places that are like coming up with solutions that we should be learning from. Um, it's, you know, I wrote this whole book mm-hmm. uh, that was, it's called What I Found in a Thousand Towns. So I had a bunch to choose from. And there was this thing that I identified that's called positive proximity. Yes. And any any place that has positive proximity is, first of all, I call it the Byron town, buy your real estate now. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, but ideally then they, you know, care enough that they can also care about their lower income neighbors. Yes. But, and they try, it's, it's hard once you've improved your town because everybody wants your yeah. real estate and everybody wants to be there. Um, but, uh, so places with high positive proximity, it's like, how did they get there? So the, the, my big go-to example is Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. There was, you know, a shadow economy, drugs, prostitution, people, you know, locked their doors and drove through fast, that kind of thing, bad lighting, and, um, and a lot of kind of uh, about the, mm-hmm. um, the, the steel belt becoming the rust belt. So, um, and the coal belt going down too. So um, history, you know, so there are these ways that people come to finding each other. And it's not like they sit around and go, hey, let's all get along. Let's all just yeah. be cool. Let's just try to win each other over to this amorphous idea of kindness. They found their history. There's all these layers of history that they brought in. So that's, you know, there's other things like food, your regional beauty, your arts, your whatever, whatever you want to capitalize on. They capitalized on their history just like a person is like I like my nose I don't like my ears you know Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I'll get this haircut and I'll do you know pierce my nose so (laughs) they have a they they they're the best example it's really cool there's like the whole watershed that they've Mm -hmm. you know they show you the history of the watershed they they um have one of the old steel mill buildings with some of the machinery inside and they use it as an event space Mm -hmm. and like wedding couples stand in front of this big shafty thing and so there's that but they have this thing called Blobfest. And Blobfest is a celebration of the fact that the blob was filmed in Phoenixville. Oh my gosh. And so, yeah, it's a sci-fi weekend. And it's fantastic. It's funny. They have a celebration on Friday night where they where they reenact the running out of the, the Colonial Theater because the blob is chasing them. So <laughs> 9.30 at night, they run screaming and yeah. everybody films it. And, and so um, out of that, and all the planning of that, there's this other thing that they do that's called the Firebird Festival. Mm-hmm. And they and I saw some postcards. It's like, it's that time again. Mm-hmm. And everybody comes and works and builds this giant phoenix out of wood pallets. 
and anybody can join. And, and so you have these different kinds of backgrounds of right. like, you know, people who are used to doing this and people who aren't used to doing it. And so it's, there's so much side-by-side stuff. So Blobfest led to Firebird Festival and Firebird Festival is also like restaurant, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's good for the restaurants. Then, then now they have restaurant week. And, and so it's like this one thing leads to another, leads to another. They also have a very accessible waterfront. They also have a really happening downtown now. Mm-hmm. They also have a senior center that's really active. And there's just ways that they are able to look out for each other as humans of varying, you know, mental abilities, backgrounds, trauma, and incomes. Um, and and it's been, there's a history of multiracial working side-by-side mm-hmm. stuff that is, you know, Pennsylvania is an interesting state, but, you know, you see some of that side-by-side stuff mm-hmm. happening in the town as well. So... Um, so it's, I would say any town that I found that has high positive proximity, like Phoenixville, where they let their own history, their own like Tai Chi, their own, um, balance of what makes them unique and special lead them into resiliency and, and pride and, um, uniqueness, you know, and, and, and a way to bring in some money from the outside world Mm -hmm. will be a place, Iowa city, Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, Carborough, all of the places around the Triangle cities of, of North, North Carolina, Carolina, Asheville, North Carolina. Um, they're places that are kind of known to be very sort of liberal and stuff. And people mm-hmm. have said that they actually are strangely, they can feel strangely um, backward. Like mm-hmm. they can feel a little rigid in their thing. So, and I won't say what they are, but somebody's like, I, I know a black woman who's like I can't I can't even <laughs> and uh you know like this is like they don't get how bad it uh. and um but the the places with that energy of let's really learn from each other mm-hmm. Detroit has it right now yeah. there's a lot of industrious energy there Berkeley you know as a city of dreamers is still a city of dreamers it's wealthier dreamers yes. but there's still like a lot of not as wealthy dreamers mm-hmm. there's places to live and and that vision of, of what the world can be and that insistence that we hold on to that vision, no matter where we are, is still very much in Berkeley. Mm. So, um, but I would say I've seen it all over. I've seen it in Alaska and all sorts of cities in Alaska. And um, Oh my gosh, that just triggered. I had a dream about Alaska last night that I watched ooh. a line of people, one after another, get into a hot air balloon and float off to Alaska. Sorry to interrupt that I, very meaningful talk you. on cities, but that memory just was triggered. <laughs> if I knew you better, I would, I would, I, we, we would have, you would dig in. I love dream analysis. I'm terrible at it, but I love doing it. I love to talk about dreams and I don't know anything. <laughs> I think it's just, as, as my friend Bryn says, strong and wrong. Strong and wrong. <laughs> I, I like to go in strong and wrong with dream interpretation. But so so I, I think the places, it's not really about politics. It's about where people have dug in to who they are, where they are, and feeling proud of that and finding things to be proud of and building on it and having partnerships that are interesting between hmm. schools and towns and things like that. Anything that, that has almost like, you look at the energy between things and say, ooh, look at all that mojo juju stuff going on between mm-hmm. these people, this willingness to look at this next thing. Like, let's have fire, you know, we have waterfall. Let's have waterfall festival day. Right. Yeah, let's try, you know, any place where people have started And various to, groups coming together to make right, it Right, groups and individuals. And also, like, mm-hmm. not precious, like saying, 
yeah, so-and-so is really annoying. He's just really good at sound, but don't talk to him because he's so annoying. But, you know, he's mean. But this person makes brownies, and she's, <laughs> she's you know, and, and, and she's, and she's lovely and she's super shy but this yeah. person has no skill set whatsoever except that they introduce concerts so let's just love mm-hmm. their extroverted personality like that any place that where people have kind of found each other there with a sense of humor and capitalizing on a way mm-hmm. to be like this through their projects as opposed to like you know if you use our bathrooms right. we'll shoot you in the head you know <laughs> those kinds of environments um, will are are really wonderful, and it's not related to any state or, it's or all politics. Over. Yeah. Um, I have one more question about the album, and then if you're willing, I would like to do a lightning round. Um, I want sure. to talk on about the excellent vocal performances on this record. So emotive, so clear, yeah. and I wonder how you develop like how you're going to perform on a recording. Do you like to share things with friends? Do you like to try out songs on the road first and then record them? Or do you do a lot of improvisation in the studio? It's it's really great to have some life in these songs before you go in. I didn't have the luxury this time. There were a couple that I had written like very close to recording time. And that's that's really not ideal because the songs will, um, as I, I know a person who says, you know, it's like the lyrics find their way of sitting on the music you know mm-hmm. they find their performative thing through performance so um that's <laughs> unfortunately some of them i hadn't been able to do that with but um the uh but the musicians that you work with you know you trust them and if if i did learn when i was recording february i did this in performance of it that was very personal and I felt it like super Stanislavski method acting yes. like I'm going to feel this 100% and mm-hmm. and the and the producer was in another room and he came in he's like that wasn't it I was like whoa like I was so there and then he and then I did I said okay I, I guess I'll feel it more and so I felt it more and you know I, I did all of those acting exercises to like mm-hmm. really be in that moment and um <laughs> he's like yeah I'm sorry I don't know and I was like you know what I'll just do it as if I'm like in my voice lessons and I'll just really pay attention to my vocal technique and and really get the notes on, you know, and just get. And he came in and he was crying and he's like, what what happened? Oh, my God. And what I realized is that sometimes when you're internal, you're internal. And and so if you're paying attention to what's coming out of your mouth, you're more external And so it's interesting, like, no, method acting is not necessarily the the ticket for performing. So I try to just say, look, this is today. I ate this for breakfast. I had this for, you know, I had coffee. I I love these guys that I'm performing with. I love this place. I'm going to look up at those lights and you know, sing in this way and, and then we'll see if that's the take. And, and, um, and while they're futzing, I'm going to work on a crossword puzzle so I don't get anxious. Oh, that's a good tip. That those like dead in between take times can be real, um, mental, uh, whirlpools. I'm not a fan. (laughs) Exactly. It gets very whirlpooly. You're right. And so, yeah, I, word games are really great. Crossword puzzles are are great because you can pick them up and put them down. Fantastic. Okay. Um, I have one final segment, which is the lightning round. We are going for speed here. I like to say it will be timed, but I never bother to time it. So just go from the gut. Um, No follow-up questions, just whatever comes first to mind. Okay. What is your favorite color? Purple. What is the best age to be? Nine. (laughs) Um, Who is a songwriter who's impressed you lately? 
Oh, uh, Chris Matthews um, and Heather Maloney. Oh, gosh, a lot. I love Heather Maloney so much. Um, <laughs> virtual reality or reality TV? Uh, oh, virtual reality. Most underrated American town? Pittsburgh. Chocolate-covered raisins or yogurt-dipped pretzels? Uh, raisins. And finally, you walk into a guitar store and you see the perfect acoustic guitar. You pick it up to try out a song. What song are you playing? Oh, City of New Orleans mm. by Steve Goodman. Dar Williams, thank you so much for talking with me. Um, on a personal note, I got a used copy of The Green World at my hometown record store, and it like just was hugely influential. So it's it's so cool to talk to you about your new music. Everyone go out and get the new album. It is beautiful. Thank you so much. And Thank good you. luck. I'm sure we will meet on the road as well. I'm sure we will. <laughs> Have a good one. Thanks, Dark. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by Sarah Siplak. Our music composed by Alex Stanton of Townspeople. I'm your host, Cindy Howes. Thanks again to Lizzie No for talking to Dar Williams today. And go back and check out all of Lizzie's episodes of Basic Folk. You can find every episode we've done wherever you get podcasts and at basicfolk.com. Okay, we'll talk to you next time. Bye.